Hey, I'm Jesse. Let's have a devotion. We're continuing through the book of Isaiah. Let's look at chapter 48. Listen to this, house of Jacob, those who are called by the name Israel and have descended from Judah, who swear by the name of the Lord and declare the God of Israel, but not in truth or righteousness. For they are named after the holy city and lean on the God of Israel. His name is the Lord of armies. So in this opening verses, Isaiah is about to address people who claim the name of Israel. They claim to be a part of the nation of Israel. We saw that there would be future generations of people who would write on their hands like, I am the Lord's, that people would claim to be a part of the nation of Israel. When we get to the book of Esther, you're also going to see this massive edict decreed and, and uh, people throughout this largely pagan nation are going to pretend to be Israelites so as to sort of curry favor and uh, and avoid avoid penalty. But this is really addressing Israelites who are just doing lip service in their worship to God. Like Amos would describe them as those uh, who honor God with their lips, but their hearts are far from Him. Or maybe that's Isaiah. Amos and Isaiah were contemporaries, forgive me. But the point is, they would claim to love God. They would claim to know Yahweh as their God, but they 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 just swear the name of the Lord and declare the God of righteousness, but they, they don't do it in truth or righteousness. Verse 3, I declared the past events long ago. They came out of my mouth. I proclaimed them. Suddenly I acted and they occurred. All right, so he's setting the tone for something that's going to happen in verse 7, just reminding us, I've said in the past I'm going to do something, and I've done those things. Paul would do this in the New Testament as well. Like, look, God said that he would flood the earth, and he flooded the earth. God said he's coming back, so he's coming back. God does everything that he says he will do. Because I know that you are stubborn, and your neck is iron, and your forehead bronze. Therefore, I declared to you long ago, I announced it to you before it occurred, so that you could not claim, my idol caused them, my carved image and cast idol Control them. You have heard it. Observe it all. Will you not acknowledge it? From now on, I will announce new things to you, hidden things that you have not known. And so again, uh, the, 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 the taunting of the idols resumes. Like uh, This was a theme that we saw uh, you know, every, as, since chapter 40. It's kind of this turning point. Um, and now, uh, upon, upon this chapter, you're going to see it further escalate. Basically, just God has at this point in Isaiah's ministry said what he's going to do multiple times and done it multiple times. And now he's about to expand the prophetic scope. Uh, Isaiah is going to get a little bit apocalyptic. And when you hear Babylon in this text, when you read Babylon in this text, uh, it's possible that from this chapter forward to the book of Isaiah, Babylon doesn't just refer to Babylon, the contemporaries of ancient Judah, the original earthly recipients of Isaiah's message, that it speaks rather to the future archetypal Babylon who is in the book of Revelation, this nation, as it were, uh, that just personifies everything that is depraved about mankind, everything that is rebellious against God, this future nation. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of speculation as to what Babylon is. Um, the more depraved American culture gets, the more people begin to think that uh, Babylon in Revelation is America. I think that what John did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and in authoring 
revelation was to take Babylon as an archetype and then describe just the world power. Some of what also plays out politically in Revelation is really like a one world government. So you, you can't really say that it's going to be this nation or that nation is going to become Babylon. Really, there's this merging of nations and then there's sort of and all the depravity of it is sort of referred to as Babylon. So you're going to see that apocalyptic uh, connotation for Babylon uh, used at this point in Isaiah moving forward. I'll let you know if there's a particular verse that alters its usage. They have been created now and not long ago. You have not heard of them before today, so you could not claim I already knew them. All right, man, uh, if you lived in the day of Isaiah and if the stock market existed, dude, <laughs> I would be shorting Babylon. You know what shorts are, right? When you short, basically you're betting on something to fail. Dude, uh, that would be, it wouldn't really be considered insider trading. It's more like divine trading because... Uh, Nobody would have bet this. Uh, no, nobody would have. Nobody would have guessed this. Like God is about to open up a whole new epic of of prophecy. This has not been iterated by Amos's ministry. This was this was not uh, something that Isaiah had already said before. This is hot off the presses, brand new future foretelling from Isaiah to the original recipients. You have never heard, you have never known, for a long time your ears have not been opened, for I knew that you were very treacherous and were known as a rebel from birth. I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. I will restrain myself for your benefit and for my praise so that you will not be destroyed. All right, so he's talking to the people of Judah. He's talking to his own people um, who have been stiff-necked. Earlier, we saw some of the same imagery that even kind of echoes uh, notes from Daniel's vision of the future empires. Uh, you had the Syrians, the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Romans, and each of these was represented by a different, uh, a, a different aspect of this massive statue that sort of showed uh, the empires that would rule over them, each of a different precious metal uh, with the feet of clay. All right, so uh, back to where we left off in the text. God is saying something now so that nobody else can say, I already knew it. This is part of the power of the written word. It's written, it's preserved, it's published, it's made known, it predicts the future, and then it may be mocked in the meantime, and then when it's fulfilled, you either acknowledge the truth, and by the power of the Holy Spirit you repent, or you're a fool. You have never heard, you have never known for a long time. Your ears have not been opened, for I knew that you were very treacherous and uh, you were known as a rebel from birth. I will delay my anger for the sake of my name. Uh, man, this is good news for you and me, that God is patient with us. He is incredibly, incredibly patient with us. He was patient with his Old Testament people, Israel, and he's patient today. In fact, that's, that's, New, Testament, uh, that's New Testament teaching as, as well. So God restrains himself for the benefit of his people and for his praise. Because God is glorified when he takes his messed up, broken people who make mistakes and then redeems us. We can't take any credit for our own redemption. God gets all of the glory. All right, so the fact that Israel would not be destroyed. Look, I have refined you, but not as silver, meaning there's more to come. There's more fire to come. The way you refine precious metals is through heat. I have tested you in the furnace of affliction. I will act for my own sake, indeed my own, for how can I be defiled? I will not give my glory to another. This is a common theme in, in, in a lot of modern false teaching. Um, and you can sometimes hear it, um, you could sometimes hear it in, in Christian music lyrics. 
right? Uh, where it's sort of a me-centered gospel, uh, sort of a narcissistic hermeneutic, uh, where everything is about us and and the the cross and everything was really just for for our glory. When the truth is that all of redemptive history gives glory to God and to God alone. You and I are the bad guys in the story. We don't get any of the glory. The Redeemer gets all of the glory. Right? God is acting for His own sake. All right, for his own name, for his own glory. Uh, if we try to take the gospel and make it for our own glory, then we cheapen it, we diminish it, and we can contort it potentially into a false gospel. All of it is for the glory of God. Make sure that you don't think of your own salvation for your own glorification. Rather, your salvation is a testimony to the glory of God, because you and I were sinners. And while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is grace. This is not of ourselves. Not one of us can boast. It's all indeed for the glory of God. I will act for my own sake, indeed my own. All right, so beware the narcissistic hermeneutic. Listen to me, Jacob. He's speaking to his chosen people and Israel, the one called by me. I am he. I am the first. I am also the last. So he alone is God. They're surrounded by polytheism. And God is reminding them of who he is. Would you be reminded of who your God is today? My own hand founded the earth. My right hand spread out the heavens. When I summoned them, they stood up together. God existed before anything else existed from our perspective, right? We, uh, he created time and he exists outside of it. In fact, he holds it in his hands. If it helps to picture the musical notation of a fermata, right? And God is the point. His existence cannot be graphed as if it has a beginning and an end. Not like a line, but really more like a point. Time is the line or a line segment. It has a beginning point and an ending point, And God is sovereign over both of them. All right, this isn't in scripture, but if it helps you picture it, he's like, he's holding the beginning of time in his left hand and the end of time in his right hand. He is the first and the last. He is the alpha and the omega. He exists with simultaneity across all of it. All of you, assemble and listen. Who among the idols has declared these things? The Lord loves him. He will accomplish his will against Babylon and his arm will be against the Chaldeans. I, I have spoken. Yes, I have called him, I have brought him, and he will succeed in his mission. All right, so I believe that this text is uh, is pointing forward to Cyrus, all right? Uh, but it also could be, uh, as every text, really just pointing to the Lord, Je the Lord Jesus. Um, so you can see a duality to it. Uh, this has been thematic. He even named Cyrus uh, in our small group curriculum for this week's session, um, which... Which session is this? Session nine. Um, this is our this is our curriculum, and in the text that we study, God even names Cyrus before Cyrus was born. It's pretty amazing. It's pretty cool. Cyrus was aware of that fact, by the way. Uh, so you can see how verse fifteen would refer to I have brought him, and he will succeed in his mission. You can see how that refers to Cyrus because Cyrus is referred to. Uh, think of it like a lowercase a anointed. It's unique. It's interesting. Uh, but the anointed one, that is the Christ. That's the Messiah. Cyrus didn't even worship God, but verse 15 has a duality to it. It could be interpreted as foretelling of Cyrus, who would lead the Persian Empire to conquer the Babylonians. But then it also very clearly and obviously uh, refers to Jesus. 
And Jesus, in his succeeding in his mission, uh, when it's interpreted through a Christocentric lens, meaning you you interpret this through the lens of Jesus, we're talking about end times prophecy here. We're talking about Revelation 19 when he shows up and is victorious over evil. Approach me and listen to this. It's a haunting invitation. From the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. From the time anything existed, I was there. And now the Lord God has sent me and his spirit. All right, so now in verse 16, I think we are directly speaking about Jesus. We are directly speaking about Jesus. Verse 15, I could see how it applies to Cyrus in the context of Babylon, right? Because we've we've just rebuked the Babylonians and the Chaldeans in verse 14. And then verse 15, I could see how this would speak to Cyrus. But verse 16 can clearly speak only to the Christ, all right? This is like a word from Jesus seven centuries before Jesus's birth. Uh, from, the, from the beginning, I have not spoken in secret. Uh, what, did, what does the Gospel of John open up with, right? In the beginning was the Word, the Logos, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. Everything that was made was made through Him, and apart from Him, nothing has been made that's been made. So you can see how this is sort of like a word from Jesus through the prophet Isaiah. And then you can see that this is all, all to the will of God the Father, and then even the, uh, even the promise of the Spirit. Like the triune God is on full display in this 16th verse. And now the Lord God has sent me and His Spirit. All right, so I can, I can see how we go straight from dealing with the Babylonians and the Chaldeans in verse 14 to connotations of Cyrus in verse 15, the founder of the, of the, the Persian Empire to come. But verse 15 is more eternally true in Christ, and there's no doubt verse 16 has to be about Jesus and Jesus alone. That's about to get even more epic, and I can't wait to read it to you tomorrow. I'll see you then.